So Olaf, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Uh, we're we're going to talk today about a very interesting topic, not necessarily how to start a startup, which is many of the, the audience that listen to this are kind of first-time founders, but they'll also be interested to know about how to kind of grow a startup and maybe some of the key issues that startups have you know, maybe after they've received funding, after they get their first revenue, how do they scale that business, which is, of course, the, the main aim for, for any company, right? So uh, you've had a very interesting background uh, straight from Silicon Valley to across the world to Bertus Gardner land to pretty much everywhere, right? And I know that you come from a background within kind of a CFO role in many of those companies. Would you like to give the audience just a, a very brief kind of a, a splash of who is um, Olaf Carlson and particularly your experience with, uh, with startups and helping to grow companies. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me. I'm proud uh, to be on your program. As you can see my background, I'm uh, currently not in Germany, where I usually reside right now after a long period of time in, uh, outside of Germany in Silicon Valley, as you mentioned, in uh, South America and now in Oman. So uh, currently, uh, so in, in the last uh, three years or three and a half years, uh, I founded a company called Hydrogen Rice. We're focusing on uh, green hydrogen solutions, industrial applications, specifically in those countries uh, that have a, a great advantage in producing renewable energy, like here in Oman, the sun. Um, before that, I actually yes, spent time in the Silicon Valley. I was 10 years CFO of various tech companies. I took two of them public on NASDAQ. The last one was uh, Portal Player. It's a company that provided for five years uh, exclusively almost everything that went into the first generations of Apple iPods. Wow. Uh, I also worked in the semiconductor industry in Silicon Valley, always ex as an executive, and that was obviously uh, probably the most um, impressive time for me uh, in my career, 10 years in Silicon Valley, the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the fast pace, uh, the incredible connection for startups between capital and innovation and uh, risk-taking. I think that's the most important element that we uh, can learn from in the Silicon Valley. I'm going to talk about it later. Um, in South America, for six years, founded another company in the telecommunications business, uh, globalized it all the way to China. Um, so, yes, I've been around. I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Love. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoyed it a lot. Uh, it was really uh, an interesting time. And yes, recently, uh, during my time in Germany, I, I joined uh, a EU program funded by the European Commission, the Scale Up for Europe. We're going to talk about it later. It's uh, four very strong partners, five very strong partners, actually. So two Germans and then uh, uh, partners from Serbia, from Slovenia. In Munich, it's the very strong uh, partnership with Unternehmertum, probably the most successful accelerating program in uh, in Europe. And I think we're going to get to that later. Um, that is sure. where I am a partner, and that is also relevant, I think, for our talk today when it comes to scaling startups. But back to yeah. you first. Thank you for giving me the time for introduction. 
Yeah, of course, Olaf, no problem. I mean, that's how we met, right? Which was, uh, which is the beautiful nature of being able to work with startups and scale-ups on these European programs. That's how I got a chance to meet Olaf, which was through the Scale Up for Europe program. That's that's where I work at Undenemetum, and and Olaf also um, uh, works and supports uh, Berchtesgadener Land, which is a region in Germany on, on, near the border of Salzburg. Um, so yeah, that's that's something we're going to talk about at the end. So we'll we'll maybe tackle first of all. Um, the common challenges that you see, because you have really quite an extensive experience. And, uh, you know, uh, one, one question actually I have at the very beginning, I'm kind of jumping a little bit, but we'll, we'll tackle those challenges. And then later, uh, hopefully the Scale Up for Europe program, which is like a really fantastic equity free program for scale ups, uh, might even be a solution for how we can support to mitigate some of those challenges that pretty much every startup will face as they begin to grow. But um, a quick dive into maybe say your perspective on Silicon Valley. Um, just just a couple, of, a couple of thoughts maybe from your side, because you've been there, you know, 10, 15 years ago. What has changed uh, in your opinion the most in terms of how Silicon Valley operates or how startups you know, receive capital and grow? I'm, I'm just wondering, just, just a brief thought, not like yeah. a deep analysis, but I'm, I'm sure you've noticed trends that have just maybe completely changed from, from beginning to end, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think two things have changed in, in the Valley in the past 10, 15 years. One is the experience from the post-bubble times. I, when I was there, it was 96 through 2007. You can consider that almost like in, in you know, to some degree, as of capital bubble times, you know, it was the internet bubble, it was uh, energy bubble, it was this and that. And I think the Valley has learned from that. The Valley has learned that it's not enough for scale-ups to have PowerPoints and ideas. It is, it is you know, before you get funded, you know, there's always the exceptions, but before you get funded, you have to basically show some uh, beef. You have to show some financials. You have to show, uh, you know, progress in your development. It's not enough. In my times when I got there, it was basically enough to have an idea and you got 10 million bucks from, from the VCs <laughs> uh, that were lining up to get smart people signed up. I think that is not true anymore. So that's one thing that has changed. Um, it has changed there. It's always been, I, I think, outside of Silicon Valley, where investors are a little more conservative than there. It's always been the case. So that's not a change that actually kind of trickled through to Europe because it's always been like this here. But investors have been more conservative uh, looking at, at scale-ups and our startups and, and uh, valuing them. Uh, the other thing that has changed is, of course, and that's a constant change in the Valley, it's the focus on technology. What is, you know, where is the money going? Where are the innovations? And in my time, of course, was the internet, was uh, uh, communication devices like uh, the Apple iPod was the big driver of innovation in those days, uh, all the way through to the iPhone. It was, um, you know, then shortly after left, I left, it was, uh, uh, you know, um, health science solutions. Um, I think it was life sciences and uh, energy solutions. So I think the focus is always shifting. That's, that's quite normal. Um, I would consider that, you know, a constant change. So, so if you're too late in the valley with your idea, I mean, if you think, gee, you know, I'm going to have a great idea for energy, it's probably already there to some degree. You have to be very innovative. Uh, and you have to be, uh, you know, you have to look into the future, what could be the next big thing. And this is a constant change in the valley. Those are the two things that I see as a change. 
mm. a little more serious consideration of scale-ups before they get funded, and then a constant change in the focus of what is hot currently. Right. And right. Um, that's where most of the money goes. That's where the companies have it uh, the easiest to grow. And um, I couldn't even tell you what today's focus is. I know roughly, you know, mobility solutions are out already. That's already a thing of the past. Um, Elon Musk is going everywhere, as we know. He's uh, dropping rockets that are lost in space on the moon and, and all these things. I mean, um, it's, it's, a, it's still a little bit of a wild, wild west. It's, it's, it looks like a chaos. But it's not because it's it's quite organized. It's quite serious when it comes to funding. There's billions of dollars still invested in startups in, in the Silicon Valley. And I don't think that there's anything like it in the rest of the world. You know, a lot of regions consider themselves the Silicon Valley off. And I, I uh, appreciate that. Uh, um, but the combination of money, innovation, a million people innovating. And, and I said it before, I think that hasn't changed. There's one thing that hasn't changed is risk-taking. Hmm. I remember when I was there, um, when we hired people, one of the questions was, where did you fail? And I know that people recommend that you ask that question here too, but in Europe or anywhere else in the world, you get defensive answers, right? I failed yeah. because I'm too impatient or something like that. That's not a real, I failed. It's It's a hidden positive that you're trying to uh, tell the one that is asking you. In Silicon Valley, you really wanted to hear where people failed. Where did they take risks and really failed, crashed? Where could you see, we called it the scratch marks on the back, really. And um, right, <laughs> it, it was sort of a batch of honor to fail because you stood up again, you learned from it, and you applied what you learned to your next uh, undertaking. And that is something that I think has not changed. You didn't ask that, but it's important to kind of point out that risk taking is a batch of honor. I know it's not relevant or it's not as uh, accepted in many cultures, but I see changes even in Europe. So um, something that is relevant for when we talk about also scaling of companies is risk taking. Don't go outside of the, you know, don't get crazy, mm -hmm. but you have to take risks. Um, and maybe you have to have failed so that you learned from, from your uh, past mistakes. Don't, don't see failure or crashing or uh, risk taking as something that shouldn't be part of your um, regular uh, curriculum, basically, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. That's really interesting, Olaf, because the, to flip to a quick story, I've been about just over two years at Unternehmer to whom I started working with very early stage entrepreneurs, mostly coming from the university. And during the first month or so, we were doing boot camps. And one of my colleagues at lunch said to me, yeah, Alan, like you, you never talk about your, your startup, your failed startup. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I always introduce myself like with my last job, right, which was like working at uh, with a funding kind of organization. And then I realized like, oh, yeah, that's actually like a fear of mine a little bit to like talk about this big thing that got like some money and then just completely flopped. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I realized, no, that's that's like that's the story that I should be sharing because it develops trust that. I'm not just some person standing up on stage telling you how to do it, but I'm actually someone that messed up along the way 
and wants you to maybe learn from those mistakes. So that was a core learning of my thing. I think Irish people as well, we're a little bit hesitant to, to talk about our failures. You know, we love to talk, but we don't like to talk openly about all of our personal problems. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a, a really interesting perspective. And I just was taking some notes there. You can see me doing it because it helps me to kind of assimilate this, this knowledge, but um, interesting to see how Silicon Valley has both changed and not changed. So um, very, very interesting insights. So, you mentioned risk, right? Uh, for for scale ups, that there has to be, I suppose, a level of still calculated risk when they're moving forward. So they've maybe they've not yet found product market fit, but they've at least built a company. They've talked to customers. They've built a product around the core problem, and they've maybe got their first revenue. So they're still going to take small little, let's say, experiments. If you want to change the word risk, it's just kind of like. A, a, a testing a new hypothesis of a second product or a feature that they want to add to their to their solution. And so setting that but that's seen kind of set with a growing company that's a startup. What would be some of the what would be the biggest risk or sorry sorry the biggest challenge that they normally face when they're going from first revenue to how do we scale this up? What what aspect of the company usually is like a critical point that maybe you have to come in Olaf as a as a plumber and and help to, to fix that startup? Alan, in my experience is you know there's many of course. Uh, I think the the two key aspects is the USP. I know it's an it's an over analyze an overused term term but i think it's very important that companies at every point of time in their development are very conscious of what is unique about them because as you go through innovation uh, you pivot many times all the all the entrepreneurs have that experience you adjust your innovation based on feedback that you're getting from customers based on feedback that you're getting from the market overall but sometimes i see a sort of a, you know stagnating thought about what i want to do because you already set up you invest a time in it and and you stick to something even though the market might hint to you it's it's not exactly what it's needed what is needed and i think the most important important part in, in the scaling is, uh, uh, you know, being able to pivot, as we call it, right, adjust. Uh, don't fall in love with your innovation uh, if you're the only one that is in love. You have to listen to the investors. You have to listen to the market, to your first customers, you know, when you have pilots, and you have to adjust. And you have to analyze, you know, always the, the competition because the competition might not have a product or, you know, a service that is similar to yours and it's just a competitive product. It might come, the, the competition might come from something completely different mm -hmm. you know, that makes your solution uh, basically uh, worthless in the market or uh, because there's other solutions that, that uh, are coming from somewhere that you didn't uh, expect. And if you don't do that constantly, if you don't use all your resources, all the market input, all the contacts that you constantly uh, evaluate, then I think that is, for, for in my experience in the Silicon Valley, the most obvious reason for death, for sudden death, right? Where you, you, you're out and you struggle. And then usually people hold on to still, but they can't grow because their product is not adjusted to the needs. They didn't listen. They fell in love too early. So that's one point. It's, it's the flexibility to acknowledge change 
in your own innovation and products. That's one thing. The other one is obvious, I think. It's almost boring if I mention it, but I want to say I have the CFO background. So it's funding because, you know, you need to align very early on if you have a growth plan and if you are, if you really think your product is successful, you've got to have to have a financing plan. You have to have, and you know, how because every round takes, to be honest, a year. I mean, my, you know, sometimes it goes faster by some coincidence, but usually from, okay, I need money to, yes, the money is in the bank. It's probably a year. So if you don't look forward and if you don't plan ahead, and if you don't, if you just stick, you always have to plan rounds in parallel. So so your first round or or the, the, the most immediate round that you're thinking of is only the most immediate. What happens if you have the money in your bank, you already have to have started the next round the bigger one Mm. and and so you have to almost work in two for for, you know for two scenarios in parallel for the immediate one for the next step which so that you will never get into a position where a big customer comes to you and it's too too big of a a bite out of the cake for you where you have to say oh i'm sorry i i I can't deliver i'm cash restrained you should never be in a position where the where the uh, uh investor notices that you're short of cash and that you're running out of cash because then you give leverage to these people and and uh, you don't you always want to be in a position of having leverage on your side time on your side uh, you have to have a chance to pick uh, the right investors don't rush if you don't have to into investment decisions and so funding you know having money is it's it's probably not a surprise when I mention it but I still see it in many startups that they focus so much on their product and service and they forget that what happens if I am successful, you know, I want to launch and they notice, gee, I should have started a year ago to get cash for that launch because in most cases you have to pay for it. The start of a business is expensive. Um, Very few companies are, as customers, are going to help you with that. They expect you to deliver. They expect you to deliver uh, on time in uh, hopefully um, quantity that is that is meaningful to them and to you. And so, you know, aligning financing uh, early on with the right investors at the right amount with the right valuation is is critical. And we can talk about really what it means to get ready for that because that's another issue. What does it mean? You can't just start okay, let's look for an investor right now. You have to really have the material. You have to have some organizational preparedness for it, um, to be ready for it, to be able to present the right documents to the investors and not look unprepared or use a lot of time to prepare certain forecasts and budgets and you know things like this. So I'm, I'm really, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I remind them early on to look into documenting the company preparing it for the next round. And it's never too early to start looking for investors. Yeah, very good piece of advice. To, to build on that, I would have a question, kind of a follow-up question. So would you define revenue as one of the most important things? I know you're a CFO, so you probably would say, yeah, but um, you know, is revenue in your perspective like the most important thing that people should look, look, look towards? And then the follow-up question or the connected connection to that is, then if revenue is the most important thing, would it be that people kind of like 
don't adequately uh, allocate where their funding should be used so that maybe they put too much money into product mm. development, but they should be hiring a sales team or, you know, they should be focusing on I don't know, HR or different things like that. So there would be like two quick questions I would have. Yeah. Look, I mean, revenue is cash, right? And, and, and cash is king. Yes, as they say. You can, you can go all that way. But that, obviously, it's not true uh, for all companies. So when we go back to the bubble experience in the Silicon Valley, that was one of the problems that the bubble had, that it wasn't focused on revenue, right? That's the learning from investors. It was focused on great ideas and internet click views and breach. And yes, we've seen from companies like Amazon, it was the right strategy. There was no revenue. There was huge accumulated losses at the beginning. It was all yeah. about reach. And then once the reach was there, then the revenue came. So I, I don't want to sit here and say that revenue is the only, uh, you know, important. It depends really on the, on the startup. But yes, for smaller startups, um, let's call it traction. Not yeah. really, you know, necessarily revenue. Let's call it customer acceptance, customer integration, customer interaction that you can prove that this product is relevant. Maybe you still have to adjust it. Maybe it still takes time to get it. But but when you have traction with customers, serious traction, interaction, contracts that will show the basis for revenue production in the future, that's that's also important. It's wonderful if you already have it in the market. Mm. You know, when we're talking about you know, two stages, one is how to get into the market, then you can't have revenue. You have to have, you know, then, then the story is what's your innovation? And again, what is your USP? Mm. What is really the USP? Why are you unique? Do you really have it analyzed? And can you say it in 20 seconds? <laughs> what is so unique about you? And in my experience, and believe me, we're all guilty. When I'm asked, what does hydrogen rise do? I take longer than 20 seconds, but I try to really remind myself, not good. You should be able to say in 20 seconds or shorter, why you are unique and why somebody should continue to work with you or talk to you or be interested in you. If you can't do that, maybe you haven't really analyzed your, your position in the market or your strength. Mm. So, you know, before revenue comes that. But once you have that and you get traction, then revenue is always relevant. Uh, you know, profit, not so much. Because yeah. investors are not interested in whether you're profitable. Investors are interested in the revenue growth and the potential. Yeah. And they want their money to make a difference. So they really want, they want to help you with the money. They want to be part of the growth. They don't want to invest at the top. They want to invest at the bottom and then grow with you. So revenue, you know, already on the books is, is a good proof point. Um, but revenue growth and potential and where you connect the need for money, your innovation development with the, with the development of your growth potential, your revenue potential. That's, I think, the most uh, relevant uh, uh, string of arguments that you will make to, to get investors' interest and then to scale uh, with that money. So short back to your question, is revenue the most important one? It's nice to have, yes. And it's uh, in, at any given point of time, it's a good proof point. But it's really your perspective into revenue growth and your, and your argument, how you can convince yourself, your team, the market, the customers, and the investors why this is logic. Why is it logic based on my USP, based on my technology, my team uh, preparedness for innovation, 
the money that I have lined up to do this, why can't I really deliver on that promise? Mm. So I guess it's almost like the um, the roadmap to revenue growth, which has to be the perspective. So it's kind of yeah. the end goal is to produce it. Well, mine is getting warm, so I'm going to change <laughs> no my... <problem. laughs> You're very agile on this uh, podcast, so no problem. Um, but yeah, I guess it, it is the pathway, as you said, kind of the milestones towards revenue growth, right? Because startups are all about... Uh, exponential growth, right? And to do that, you're not always going to be profitable in the first few years, which is why you need this capital investment to help you kind of bolster uh, the team and everything else to be able to support that growth, right? So that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would have a question to go back to the USP. Uh, I guess we always say that the USP is really important for startups that are at an early stage. But I guess it's even more, I guess it's even riskier after you've had some level of traction or validation with customers. And maybe you've had a paid pilot or maybe you have your first revenue and then you think, ah, we've got it. Like we've found product market fit. And then you probably slip back into that valley of death, which is like assuming that now this is our product. We just nail this down and then make some small improvements and then deliver it. So I guess the risk is maybe even higher for startups that are growing or scaling that they may become over-obsessed on the product, right? Compared to like an early stage startup where we always tell them your idea is not important. Just go talk to your customers. Would that be how you feel a little bit that like maybe the bias can slip back in again and that they will just assume that their USP is fixed when really it might be quite dynamic, right? Or it might change over time. Yeah. If, 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 if you, if you do not react to what's happening on the path, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, like walking in the, in the beautiful sunshine on the long path and all of a sudden it gets dark and, and you don't, and you don't acknowledge that it's getting dark. Yeah. It's like, well, where does that come from? I keep walking or do I have to maybe change my strategy? Should I stay here? Should I turn around? Mm. Um, it's really, it's absolutely true. What you say, Alan, is is flexibility and constant analysis of your environment. And that means really your market reaction, the comp- competition that is probably, you know, you have to be so sensitive. What could be challenging your product in the market? Uh, and And... And I warn every startup, it's probably not going to look exactly like your product. <laughs> it's going to be something else that is really challenging uh, your idea in the future because somebody thought of a different approach and that might make more sense to the customers in the market. And, and even though from a technology innovation, your product is perfect, but probably from the solution or from the combination of different solutions, your product is not as optimal as maybe the next service or the next product that is lurking and the market is very sensitive to this these people that you talk to you and your customer in the purchase organizations or in the in the innovation departments at your customers they know um the good ones know and uh, they will tell you why should i do it this way why shouldn't i wait or do it in another way and you have to listen and if you you know to your point if you fall back to your love of your own innovation maybe the love of your initial success and you fight against that and you try to convince them maybe you're right but if you notice resistance Mm. you should very clearly look into that and you should you know if you have a chance take a turn um very few companies can break through that barrier with force. 
usually these are the big ones with a multi-billion dollar marketing campaign. They can create truths. Yeah. You know, like the Intels or the Apples or the Googles or whoever. They can create truths in the market that the people then believe, even though it's not right. I've seen it many times in Silicon Valley where good technology, more evolved solutions didn't make it to the market because not because they weren't better, but they couldn't get through the to the curtain of, of fabricated truth by billion dollar uh, uh, marketing campaigns. And so that is also reality. If you don't, if you, if you think you can break through it and you have the money and you have the force, I don't want to stop you from trying it, but at least acknowledge it as a risk. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And um, would you, would you say, cause there's many factors to consider. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of uh, telling startups, uh, even when they begin to scale, of course, to have that continuous, almost daily conversation with a certain number of customers so that they can constantly get that feedback and stuff like that. But you mentioned other very important things. I guess it comes from your perspective as a CFO, which you mentioned competition, you mentioned like general market reactions, et cetera. Is there any actionable things you would tell people or just like what's the, you know, the one important thing that a, a startup that is beginning to scale should maybe consider like a, you know, a daily task they can just check the pulse of their customers or check the pulse of whatever yeah. it's hard right because it's not so systematic maybe the approach it needs to be a little bit more qualitative right yeah, yeah look at me here it's 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 interesting to talk about um the misunderstanding that that organizations um act pragmatically they don't you know, customer organizations is just a bunch of people and, and every person, you and me and everybody who's listening, we're, we're our individuals and we have, uh, we have psychologies. And um, if you think you're talking to a big company and you, and everything is objective and everything is logic, it's not the case. There is, so, so one of the, the key challenges for scaling and the key challenges for, for, for understanding your chance in the market is really to talk to your customer, but not at one level. Uh, first of all, second, you have to understand the, the psychology of the person you're talking to. What is that person driven by? Is that a personal risk taker? How easy is it for that person to take your innovation and, and present it within the organization? Is it a risk for that, for that uh, person? You know, in, in Silicon Valley, we said, you know, you can you know, never go wrong with Intel and IBM in those days. Um, but you had better solutions. But the purchasers in the big companies, you know, when you came with a better solution, they said, yeah, I see it's better. But... You know, if I make Intel. a decision towards <laughs> Intel and IBM, I can never fail. If that goes wrong, no one's going to blame me. Mm -hmm. If I go with a startup's idea, even though it's better and it fails, I lose my job. That point and so, right. <laughs> so understanding the personal fears and, and, and psychology of the people that you speak with, and then also organizational structures within the organization. So when I come in September, it's, it's very common. If I come in September and I have, you know, a great solution for our company say, would you want to implement it? They say, yeah, I would like to, but you know, we, we're running out of budget this year. These are so simple little things that if you don't know how the budget process works in a company, you know, they'd say, come back in March, you know, when we have new budget or, or you have to be part of the budget process at the beginning. Uh, so understand when money is available for you 
because companies do have budgets. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that they always adhere to it 100%, and sometimes they have flexibility. But it is a, a restriction for, for many uh, companies that are trying to sell something to them that they're outside of the budget cycle. Um, also understand what the financial, um, how they're financially driven. Public companies mostly are financially driven by margins. So everything, when you sell something, you have to, you know, what is your business model? Are you giving them, you know, do they, do you ask for uh, um, money from that particular customer that he would record as an investment, which becomes an asset? Or do you ask them for something that hits their bottom line? So is it an operating expense? And some companies are quite uh, sensitive to that, you know, because they have, because when you invest, it doesn't go into your margin. It, it sits somewhere in a depreciation or amortization or whatever. And it's that's easy return, to, right? to defend internally sometimes, but margins are not. Sometimes it's the other way around. When they don't have a budget anymore, they say, you know, I'd rather have it as an operating expense. So try to understand, you know, how your customers work and, and be flexible with your business model. You know, maybe you don't have just one. You have, you know, a different business model for each customer, depending on what their preference is, um, how they want to report it. So these are the things when, when you talk to customers, don't, don't assume their logic. You have a good solution. It's better what they have, they should buy it. Yes, they might recognize it, but they, for many reasons, that could be in the psychology of the person that you talk to, um, doesn't work. So the better you get into their head, like almost like the more intelligence you gather on them, hmm. I'm always asked that, how do you do it? And I don't have the answer for that really. I don't know how to gather themselves. <laughs> you just have to be your own Sherlock Holmes and detective and, and try to find as many contexts as possible yeah. with your with these organizations. You have to understand how they work. Who is the decision maker in the organization? Is it the purchaser? Is it the CFO? Is it the marketing department? I mean, the you know, what what, what do they need your solution for? And those are the people that are going to drive the decision in the organization. And they might not be the ones that you're talking to. And so, or that you have to talk to. So it's, you know, try to have these different levels. I think it was the Iacocca or somebody said, you know, years and years ago, your audience might be too young. The big price of CEO <laughs> 50 years ago. Uh, he said, you have to have four contacts in each organization. I don't know how he came up with four. And, you know, have three, have, but one is not good enough. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it with startups that they have one contact in a hospital that uh, there's one startup they're looking to build uh, like an actual, some form of building, let's say, just to keep it confidential. And they have one uh, person who's connected to the board, but not on the board. And, you know, it's just one gateway, but the people at the board can block it because there's new management or whatever. So, you know, that that's an, a classic example of, um, uh, you know, only having one contact in a company or an organization doesn't make sense. doesn't give you enough perspective. And yeah. I think you also see it with, with, with med tech startups as well, or healthcare startups that they talk to a doctor or a physio and they, they get approval that the surgeon loves this tool, but the surgeon may not have the authority from and has a different perspective because he's thinking patient outcomes, time and surgery, and it may be right. But the, the, the administrator who has to give the authority to say, yes, you can buy this 10,000 sure. euro piece of equipment is thinking, uh, is this going to 
save the margins because you said earlier, right? The, the public companies are driven by margins. So is this going to help the bottom line of the hospital saving yeah. money immediately or in the short term, right? So really- You know, that's a good point, you know, the, the bottom line, because I, I see a lot of startups and I have done it in my life too, of course, you know, you, you try to- a value the monetary impact you know that you have that your solution have and it has and then you tell them oh you can make i don't know a million more revenue if you use mine um i think that's probably the best way of doing it but be very careful how you measure that because you you you, you have to assume you don't know enough about your customer to measure what that impact is you rather than telling them you can make a million or 10 or five or, or cost saving is even worse because when cost saving is associated with cutting people, not a good argument. Yeah, I know we all think like that, but to put it on a piece of paper and say, my solution is going to save you five person years or something um, might be true, but let them come up with that themselves. Yeah. You know, a point to cost savings in the organizational structure that you would expect, but don't put a number on it because they will say, how do you scale up? Know what my financials really look like and how we're organized. Just ask them, what do you think that could be in the cost saving? And when you say, you know, this could be, you know, increasing your, your revenue line, because given just the arguments why you think, don't put numbers next to it, because it is assumed by most of the decision makers that you're talking to almost presumptive. It's like, what do you know? And we're startups. I mean, I'm a little older now as a startup entrepreneur, but usually it's young kids that are doing this. And, and the people on the other side know that you're young and that you're relatively inexperienced when it comes to you know, their business. And so don't try to be someone that you're not. Mm -hmm. You have ideas. You have risks, you have energy that they usually look for. That is your strength because you're flexible, you're creative, you're energetic, you want to change things. Usually those innovation people on the other side don't have that in their innovation. I mean, even in their own innovation department anymore, because they're big and inflexible. It's a cruise ship, so right? That's what you're looking for, but not like to tell them how to run their business. Yep. Um, give them the things. And then another thing that you mentioned is, you know, it's not just the people that you need to understand how they're ticking, but also who's going to block you. You know, a lot of the solutions now in innovations have to do somehow in some way with the IT structure in a company. And these are probably the last people that you're going to be able to talk to. You talk to all kinds of other people, but not the ones that are managing the IT structure. And I have to say, and I don't hope I'm insulting here, you know, IT experts, but if you, if you work in an IT company, you usually have a pipeline of things that are quite boring to you, but you have to do them. Hmm. And when another thing comes and now, you know, integrate this and that solution, that first reaction is, I don't have time. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. And they have to say only one word to the CEO, and that is risk. Mm -hmm. If I open up my IT box and I put this thing in there, the risk is that we lose that. And the CEO, who is not an IT person usually, immediately will, will back off and say, okay, that's, you know, my IT guy said it's risky, forget it. And, um, you know, so at some point in time, try to get these IT people involved and interested and don't be smarter than them, even if you are, <laughs> um, you know, try to get them on board and why what you're doing it could be exciting for them too. Why is it, uh, it might make their life easier in the, in the future, but usually these people have without, without that it's known, a huge impact on corporate buying decisions. 
in my experience, I failed many, many times because the IT people just blocked me. Yeah, I can imagine it. And I think also legal is something that's overlooked that particularly if you're introducing a new type of IT system or something, you know, let's say GDPR alone, right? You might get the buy-in from everyone else and then legal team says, hold on a minute, this is too difficult for us to implement because of whatever. So I think- Legal is yeah. worse than IT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the two most powerful very necessary again i don't want to offend anyone you know of course. I, I use a lot of lawyers and i have used them and really took my advantage and admire them and they're important but of course as soon as something gets to the legal department you can assure and you can assume that that um it's going to get tricky yeah uh, and it could die there because one wrong word from legal uh counsel to ceo saying this is tricky this is a risk might kill your 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 service and you're not there defending yourself at the very moment when he says yeah. that yeah and you never know what hit you when you get the email sorry we they don't even say it's because it's risky they say sorry we made another decision talk to you next year yeah yeah this is why b2b sales are so tricky right there's so many players involved right but i think to summarize kind of the direction you were taking there i read this just i'm rereading the mom test by rob fitzpatrick at the moment and he talks about the pathos problem meaning like basically people putting their ego and looking to validate that ego and the idea when they talk to their customers or to key decision makers and I think, yes, removing yourself from that conversation and really letting the customer or whoever you're talking to uh, give you the, the data and really listening rather than dictating to them, this is going to save you X amount of money. I think that's a very good uh, approach full stop because let's say, let's be honest, like with IT, that's not going to work. You can't tell them, but look at all the cost savings they're going to have. They're just thinking workload. They have a pipeline. They don't want an extra task to do that. They're yeah. so far removed from the value probably as well, right? They're just someone that has to implement it. So the um, the buy-in is very different for them. So yeah, cool. Um, but thank you very much for all of that. That was really amazing. I'd love to switch now and then talk a little bit about um, how to mitigate some of these uh, issues that you mentioned. So we, we talked a little bit about those two things that could help um, in order to keep your USP dynamic as you scale in order to make sure that you can really continuously um, iterate, let's say, on the innovation and stay close to what the customers want. And customers are key there in order to be able to help startups uh, to be able to grow. And you mentioned funding, you mentioned the USP as the two kind of biggest risks. Um, so in terms of uh, mitigating those risks and helping companies scale, would you be able to set the scene first and maybe talk a little bit about what is the scale up for your program and, and um, the value that maybe is offered as, as part of that? I think it's a perfect time for that, Alan, because a lot of the things that we just discussed is, is sort of the, the focus of the scale up for Europe. Scale up for Europe is a, is a project EU funded. It's in its uh, third year now. Five uh, partners came together in a consortium they get the uh, they applied and they got the money from Brussels for a three-year program and beyond. Uh, it's Unternehmertum from Munich. It's uh, Berchtesgadener Language Service, which is a, a, a local support organization for a region in southeast Bavaria. There is Pioneer, which is probably the best-known uh, uh, startup support and and uh, even financing organization out of Austria. There is the technology park in Slovenia and there's the Chamber of Commerce in Serbia. For us, very interesting because this is the growth region. Southeast Europe is, is uh, for many startups, a very, very interesting market because it's relatively untapped. 
Uh, it's not a huge market, I agree. It's, uh, you know, the whole Western Balkan region all the way down to almost Greece, if, you know, Greece is not a part of that, but Macedonia, Albania, yeah, they sound almost foreign to us uh, because we, you know, we have, we don't, as people don't have a lot of experience with Southeastern Europe, but it's 20 million people. Um, very innovative area, very up and coming. If you include Romania and Bulgaria in it, uh, it's even European Union from that perspective. Perspective. So this is why we chose that direction: Germany, Austria, and then to the south of Europe. And these five partners came together to do one thing, which is support of for for, for a little further developed startups, which now hit sort of the next um, growth hurdle which is scaling internationally right if you have some success in your local market um that's good you know we talked about it you have some revenue you have some proof points your market your product is in the market but now how do you take it and make it bigger uh how do you get out of uh, uh your region in in munich or and how do you scale it across international markets and not just the countries that we where we come from but globally you know, one of the big things, Silicon Valley tied back to Silicon Valley, and it's a boring statement because everybody's heard it a million times. Think big. Um, I think big is sometimes stupid because, of course, you don't always have to think big. You know, think local if you're successful and then think bigger. But overall, in general, I think it's still true. You know, if you have a great USP and if you think you can grow and if you valued your USP against now almost globally available solutions, then you have a potential for your company. And the potential is not in your city, on your region. It might be across you know, some countries, Europe, or the whole world. And risk-taking comes in. Funding comes in. If you want to take on the whole world, you need another, you need a different you know, financing structure than if you want to launch your product in you know, a quarter of, uh, of the city of Munich. And so this is what we all wanted in the project tie together, which is helping with smart, very individualized support. So, so we do offer acceleration programs, but they're all focused on very individual connection with the participating scale-ups from now all over Europe to understand where they are currently, what their potential is, how they see their USP and where they could go if successfully connected and you can do that with general acceleration programs we offer that too you know you can participate in programs for example offered by Unternehmertum where you talk about spread uh, term sheets or something more in general which is a regular acceleration but most of the companies that we are attracting to the programs are a little beyond that actually they, they, they really want to understand, okay, yeah, yeah, I know how to do a term sheet, but, but, but where do I find that German investor for my Slovenian company? That's what I need help with. Where do I find the, the you know, high-level industry uh, application in the West Balkans for my Austrian innovation? Because I don't know how to get to them. Mm-hmm. And when we talked about how to connect with customers and understand them, what the biggest support you can probably have is a warm, not a cold, a warm introduction by somebody that is putting his or her name on the line when connecting a startup with a corporate. That is not an easy task. You sometimes think, you startups think, oh, you know this company, can you just introduce me? 
I want to say difficult yeah. right, for us too. <laughs> and the, the truth is we don't do that often because these are your valuable contacts. Mm -hmm. So if you use them five times a month, introducing one after the other, and you haven't really done a, you know, a good sort of due diligence on who you are recommending and how you can stand behind what you're recommending, um, it's a risk for you. Because after five time failures of companies that really not are worth recommending because they don't even, they told you they would solve something, but then in the discussion with the corporate, it turns out, no, they don't. Mm -hmm. Then you burn your name and you lose your contacts because the innovation people at the, at the customers are busy people. They get offers every day, five, 15, 20 emails of introductions of programs they can participate in so you have to be very selective and this is what we as scale up for europe presented to the european commission when we asked for their funding is we want to be special and different we want to really individually with our life experience understand the usp and then very together with the startups in many discussions sessions coaching sessions i don't want to even call it mentoring because some of them are beyond mentoring what they need yeah. is coaching I mean, coaching oh, on the way, right? I take my hand and take me to Allianz in Munich, you know, rather than a cold email that doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, has been in the past two years, now that we have the program, is, has uh, resulted in something very successful. So we have plenty of, of what we call KPIs, how we measure our project. Mm -hmm. Meaning, how many of these transactions have we successfully helped to uh, a close or open or how many strategic discussions have we really started between a Serbian startup and a German company, between a German startup and a German company? You know, how where were we able to make contacts that uh, last? Now, I can't guarantee then that they come together after a year of discussing and strategic discussions and pivoting and technology analysis. Many That's things up to the, happen. to the startup as well, right? To be able course, to... Yeah, yeah. But, but we also don't even drop them at that time. We're not saying, okay, here's the contact, make it, and then we move on. We stay with them. We help to, to maybe uh, with the communication process, maybe there's misunderstandings at the beginning. The past three years weren't easy. Face-to-face -face meetings, almost impossible. Everything had to be online. Corporate decision makers love face-to-face because -face they want to see and touch you know, the solutions, the people, and now everything's online. So it made it even more difficult to connect people with each other. But that's what we do. We, we try to really connect individually with coaches that we assign to the companies. We try to understand where they should go, where they could go. And then we use a vast networks that we have as organizations and individuals to connect them all the way to Silicon Valley. Um, and we've had success. So um, we're very proud of that. I'm almost sad that the program is running out of Brussels funding by the end of the year, but we are considering right now how to build a business model beyond that, where um, we develop some sort of structures so that it's still funded and we can still continue to help these organizations. But um, now we're still in full swing in the third year of the program, launching new programs, we have four industry focuses. One is agile manufacturing, one is, uh, is health technologies, one is smart region, and one is uh, agricultural technology. 
basically with that we're covering most of the innovations very few are not falling into one or the other category category and uh, each of our project partners is leading sort of one of these technology fields Unternehmertum, uh, so that the two German partners are leading the smart region uh, innovations and um, smart region has just launched uh, the third program the deadline for application is uh, February 13th. The Agile Manufacturing uh, Focus has launched um, the uh, second program, and the deadline is actually in a couple of days. I think it's January 31st. I encourage everyone who's listening and would fall under any of these categories to look at our website. Um, it's www.scaleup4europe.com. And then you're gonna go find the four tabs and you can pick you know, where you would fall and then you see the programs announced and the deadlines and the application. So um, it's very, it's, 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 so something great happened when these five partners came together. Uh, cross-border scaling is basically the title of the program. Not everything has to be cross-border, uh, specifically in, in the pandemic times. We're also very happy to help uh, Austrian scale up to connect with an Austrian corporate. Um, so, you know, many of what we just discussed before in scaling hurdles, you know, contact to organizations, contact to funding, understanding the organizational preparedness to attack new markets. This is what we try to help with, not through, you know, standardized programs. You know, many, these are offered in many different ways. This is different. And it's a time and a place for those standardized programs, right? Which I think is is quite unique because it's it's a very, um, it's a low level of, of commitment and input that's required because, you know, often with scale-ups, I mean, we, we've experienced it all out from working with these uh, companies that they're busy. They're busy building their business and implementing things. So uh, we, we uh, do our best not to get in the way, but rather allow you to tell us and, and through this tailored process, just explain to your coach what you need and who you need to connect to. And then we, we uh, make sure that that can happen. Uh, in, in most cases, we, we actually get a successful transaction, as Olaf has said, you know. And, and it's funny because when I've been talking a lot with different people from accelerators, et cetera, around the world, and I kind of came to the conclusion myself that there's, there's kind of four main values that you can get from an, an accelerator, which is access to customers will be my number one, uh, network, access to funding, and then education. And I put education last because most education is free. It's, it's accessible online, whether it's YouTube, Y Combinator, yes. Antler Academy, whatever. But you know, really getting access to customers is the number one thing you should look at. Even if you're an early stage startup that's joining an accelerator, yes, you have to learn, but you need to be contacting your customers. And that holds true for scale-ups. And when we slim down the whole approach, like, of course, if they need help with funding, we can help them. But in the end, we're, we're very transactional focused with our KPIs. So we want to make sure that if you join this program, first of all, we don't take any equity. It's completely free. So don't worry about having to enter into any complicated agreements. This is a European funded. So it's an equity free program for your scale up. And we really focus on how many transactions, how many connections can we make either within the country or, or, or cross border. Um, it's really something unique. Um, one, one quick question, just to close it up, um, uh, Olaf, would you have uh, any examples that you could give of maybe say some of the startups that have gone through the program that have kind of stood out to you? I mean, of course we don't have to 
go into too much detail, but just is there, are there any success stories that would stand out from, from your experience of working with, uh, with these teams over the last two years? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there have been many, and I, I've been impressed by the quality of, of applicants to the programs. Yeah. Uh, in the smart region, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I said earlier, it's it's not the Silicon Valley focus anymore, but it's still, you know, the mobility solutions. And I'm not referring to the last mile mobility, even though we had a very interesting uh, 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 startup, but, you know, a very smart grid management solutions when it comes to charging uh, 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 electric vehicles. I mean, this is a trend that's going to go through the roof in the next 20 years in sure. challenges and in opportunities. And we have very smart technologies there that have been able to uh, connect with customers and sell their solutions. Um, we had very smart health science solutions, uh, even with Corona, uh, you know, very focused Corona uh, innovations uh, that were able to um, connect with very interesting corporate partners. We had also success stories, I think, on the other side. So we were able to, you know, this is this is a noisy, in, in one way, it's a noisy time because there's so many online offerings because no one can travel anymore. So the, 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 the space is crowded with online offerings. Yeah. The corporates are inundated with offers to present themselves or to participate in programs. So to get good corporate uh, partners to participate in a program, to interact, uh, with uh, with us, uh, indicating to us where their challenges are, where they want to innovate, and and you know if you analyze it over the past two years, that has changed. Corporates had a basically cut back innovation budgets because of the pandemic and other financial challenges they had. Um, so it, it's a huge success for the program to to interact with big companies like Nvidia or. You know, I don't want to name all these partners that we have, but from all the way to the largest energy company in Serbia that spend time with us, that tell us what their innovation need is to open really up and say, this is where we need innovation from the outside. I've seen so many cool technology solutions that I didn't even know should exist. You know? <laughs> and then still they, they met a meet and meet at, at some interesting, you know, corporate partners all the way to the little machines that crawl through tunnels uh, to to uh, uh, clean them from debris that otherwise would close a street or a a, um, a, uh, um, a train. I have to name drop that. Uh, name drop uh, Drain Drainbot, which is the company you're talking about. Yeah, there. Yeah. I think it's a super cool solution, like putting yeah. in this little robot into the infrastructure of a tunnel to yeah. automatically <laughs> clean it. it it's it's, it's also amazing. a really interesting yeah. innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think you know, you know, this is why I think in, I'm participating in many of the people that are extremely experienced, people that are available to us as coaches, as people that support us without being an immediate part of the core team, but they're spending time and and uh, to to speak to the startups, to evaluate them, to figure out where their solutions could go is because of that, because we're able to attract really cool ideas. Not all of them are, of course. I mean, when we get applications, not all of them are, are fitting applications. Sure. Most of them are good. Some of them are not developed far enough, you know, things like this. But when, when we pick the ones that we have picked on an average 10 to 20 companies per program, um, we can attract a lot of corporates and a lot of 
you know, sort of outsiders that can help us with the evaluation of where it could go because they are so cool. It's really fun. Yeah. I mean, I learn, you know, I wouldn't do it if I, if I, if I don't, if I don't benefit from it in, in any way. And I benefit from it by, by learning, by, by staying on track on innovations, understand what's going on in the market. It's not all what I need for my professional life in energy and hydrogen but but it's just to stay on on top of things and stay connected with cool people and um i wish we could all meet face to face you know <laughs> i know it's, it's been a for two years right <laughs> with the pandemic and boom face to face stopped otherwise we would have had great parties also in, in different locations traveled a lot more brought all these people together from european from all the way to portugal to romania and, and have them travel and meet each other and and benefit even more from the networking mm. but these are online times so unfortunately that element is yeah we have to put aside a little bit it's unfortunate but that's the world right now so let's hope for the yep. best yeah now but just to say I, i feel also that we're very privileged to be able to connect with these companies you know that are really doing inspiring things and then the founders and the entrepreneurs that are behind all that i mean it's it's a really such a luxury to have a job from my perspective that i get to work with these people on a daily basis which is amazing yeah. uh, and i just wanted to give a little shout out to um chargex which are one of the teams that were we were coaching uh, as part of the first ever batch of um of our program and they just closed so first of all what they do they they kind of help to convert underground garages with a modular charging system for electric vehicles and you know, they're already they're already very uh, broadly expanded across uh, germany when they joined the program and we actually have their charging stations built into our new building at under the name of tomb mm -hmm. and collab so it's very nice in the morning when i drive in i can see charge x yeah. charging three teslas the other day which is really nice um and um, but yeah they they really just uh, done something fantastic they raised a 4.5 million series a round just last week uh which uh, we can't take credit for but you know they, we just helped a little bit along the way with hopefully connecting them with some nice customers but they're just a super team that are on the next level and um, which is just a massive funding round uh, to be able to raise for it for a charging company like yeah. that and um, yeah, I just wanted to give him a shout out because they've done some fantastic work the last while. I've been working very closely with Michael uh, during the actual program. But yeah, that's just my quick, my quick little shout out for one of the teams. Yeah, doing we, something yeah. amazing. But you know, we're it's, very it's, proud it's of everyone. We, we have had, you know, this is the second year. So we all had all these uh, industry focuses had yeah. batches and programs. And I think uh, not, you know, you don't stay in touch with everyone, but the alumni a connection is quite strong. So even they're not in immediate programs anymore. Our promise is you're not supported just three months, you're supported exactly. through the whole project time because connecting someone with a customer is not a thing of a week or three months. Yeah. That's something, you know, these strategic discussions or as we call sales cycles can take two years or even three years. It might be it might be something that we will still continue past our funded period of the end of this year. We will stay connected and continue to help because this is how long it sometimes takes. To, to get your solution into revenue or converted from first strategic discussion to either an investment or to either uh, or to revenue or license revenue or whatever. And so, you know, when you mention ChargeX or, or, or the companies, it's, it's uh, obvious how strong the connection is still with the companies of the first hour that we supported. We all stay in touch, we help, they come back to us and say, hey, here's a new challenge can you help me and uh, this is this is what the project basically sets out to do not to help in two months and then forget yeah. but to bring them on board learn 
and very intensively work with them for two or three months and then you know continue to cooperate beyond these particular acceleration programs that we're offering so yeah. very proud of that um we have a big review session coming up with the european commission in two weeks as you know we have to prepare as a project to defend our product with uh, with brussels and uh in the preview session we've already got uh, very good comments from brussels on the on the kpis and the achievements that we're going to present so we can be very proud um one of the few projects from what we heard from brussels again that is measuring their success really by actual transactional success and not by how many programs we organize and how many companies have participated everybody can do that critical point yeah but we set out a target is you know we want to be successful at the project by having so many x transactions by the end of the program mm-hmm. signed between startups and corporates yeah. and we already achieved our three-year goal after two so um join us Yes, please check out Scale Up for Europe, everyone. We'll put the links in the description. Uh, of course, you can reach out to anyone from the team if you have any questions. So you can reach out to me personally or, or, or to all of via LinkedIn probably is the best way. Uh, we're also going to be hosting an FAQ session where you'll have a chance to maybe interact with us live. And uh, let's say it's a live podcast version, Olaf, uh, where people can learn a little more with a few slides of what the value we offer in particular for the Smart Region Lab that we run. Um, but of course, uh, we'll have a large Q&A session there for about 30, 40 minutes where you can pretty much ask us anything. And that'll be recorded as well and available online just in case you have uh, you know, a scheduling issue. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's a fantastic program. Uh, really thank you to all the founders that engage with us and we wish them all the very best of luck. And uh, as Olaf said, deadline is on February 13th. Uh, but of course, if you're watching this or listening to this after that period of time, also reach out to us. We're also very willing to engage with scale-ups a little bit outside the program to support them if we can and if it's a quick fix from, from our side. All right. Olaf, thank you very much. I've taken two pages of notes here. It's really, really fantastic. I always enjoy having these conversations with you. So I'm glad we got a chance to record it for everyone. Um, and um, yeah, uh, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you everyone for, for listening and, and watching. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Alan. Best wishes from Musket Oman. I'm glad the internet connection held. Yeah, solid. <laughs> it's not always the case. Yeah. So I'm very happy about this. And I wish you all the best. And we keep speaking. And and, and please to all the people that listen, uh, enjoy innovating. Enjoy the journey, right? And we're along for we're along for the ride with you. <laughs> of course. Super. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Bye-bye.